You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has led the podcasting space for the pharmacy industry. This network of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians leads the podcasting charts with more than 2 million downloads, 40 different stations, and new episodes every week. The Pharmacy Podcast Network is the number one podcast for the pharmacy professional. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all your favorite podcast players. Join the Pharmacy Podcast Nation today. Hello and welcome to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall. Uh, Welcome again. Hopefully you are a uh, frequent listener, but if this is the first time you're listening, a special welcome to you. I hope you find uh, that this uh, podcast is informative and semi-entertaining or semi-informative and entertaining, one of the two. So uh, whatever it is, I hope you like it and I hope you keep going with it. Um, Please, if you do like the uh, podcast, please uh, spread the word, let your friends know, especially your pharmacist friends, because you can get CE or just listen to me blather for 20 minutes, which isn't too bad, I don't think. Uh, Like us wherever you like your uh, podcasts and and, uh, definitely uh, spread the word and and make comments about us if if you like us. Uh, The more we get the word out, the more people are going to do this. Also, um, as always, I like to thank CE Impact. They're the sponsors of of this and they kind of help run the show. Um, They, again, have Pharmacist CE attached to each one of these. And so please go to their website, which is a wealth of great uh, CE programs anyway. But uh, you can sign up for uh, uh, um, uh, CE from uh, CE Impact for each one of these. And it seems to be one of the simplest ways you can actually uh, uh, get CE is just listen while you're driving to work, answer a quick question on the on the website, and you are good to go. So, uh, again, uh, like us wherever you can. Talk about us wherever you can. Let's get the word out uh, that uh, hopefully this is pretty helpful to people, particularly pharmacists. So we're going to keep our non-COVID streak going. <laughs> we managed to go three or four weeks without talking about COVID, and we've done it once more. I, once again which I'm pretty happy about. Uh, this is an interesting paper uh, that, that kind of triggered a, a kind of a, a, rem, a, rem, a memory of what I've had and what I've seen in, in the last five or six years. It was a, a paper that came out of uh, just this week's uh, JAM Internal Medicine. And the title of the paper is Risk of Hospitalizations with Hemorrhage Among Older Patients Taking Clithromycin Versus Azithromycin and Direct Oral Anticoagulants. And so uh, it's an interesting little paper, and it's pretty similar to what you'd see in most uh, average drug reaction papers, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but it, it, it's, it, I think it's obviously a paper that most pharmacists are going to be interested in, um, and I think it's a reminder of the fact that, yes, while the NOACs or DOACs, depending on how you want to call it, I'm, I'm still calling them NOACs. I don't ask me why, um, um, but but I think either is reasonable and probably acceptable. Um, I think the argument I've always heard is, well, they're not novel anymore. They've been out for, for 10 years. Yeah, I get that. But but still, um, I, I tend to call them no acts, but no acts, no acts, however you want to call them. Uh, we know that 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 they're far safer than warfarin when it comes to 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 drug interactions and and other conditions. I mean, uh, any of you who are old enough to have spent a lot of time in a in a Coumadin clinic um, certainly remember dealing with patients where it just seemed like change in the weather might be enough to to alter their INR, you know. And so it was it, it was always amazing to me that what what little things seem to make a huge difference in people's INRs. And you know, quite rightly, uh, we've we've adopted uh, the, the the this class 
class of, of anticoagulant because they have far less drug interactions and obviously have much, much more stable uh, drug levels. But we, I think, sometimes get lulled into a false sense of complacency that these drugs have no drug interactions. And this paper suggests that that answer is, is that, 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 that assumption is incorrect. So first we'll talk about the paper, uh, then we'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, just a general review of, of what, what I think we should all keep in mind with the, uh, the NOACs when it comes to drug interactions and, uh, and just some, some, I think some stuff, the boots on the ground pharmacists should just kind of keep in, in the back of their head when it comes to these medications. So this paper, as I said, was, was uh, just uh, released um, in, in the, in JAM internal medicine, this month's JAM internal medicine. And like most average drug reaction studies, it was a large population cohort study. That's really probably the best. And let's face it, the most ethical way to do these kind of studies. You really couldn't do a randomized control trial of average drug reactions, right? You really couldn't randomize people to two drugs and see which one gets the drug interaction or, or average drug reaction, that obviously wouldn't be ethical. So sometimes the best data we have on, on ADRs for, for drugs are going to come from these large databases. And so this uh, uh, study uh, uh, was a, um, um, a study done with a large population database um, that was that they actually looked at it from uh, December 23rd, 2019 to March 25th, uh, uh, 2020, and it was done in Canada. Uh, so it, uh, it was, these were Canadian patients, so a population-based retrospective cohort study in a very large cohort of patients, about 25,000 older adult patients who are taking direct oral anticoagulants, basically. And so uh, the, the purpose of the study was to uh, uh, take a look at the potential risk for bleeding in patients who were uh, concomitantly prescribed a macrolide antibiotic and, and patients who were already taking DOACs. And so, uh, you know, you know uh, when we take a look at the macrolides, and we'll talk about this in a second, macrolides are, can be uh, potential inhibitors of the cytochrome P450 system. Uh, as I kind of teach my students, they're, they're you know, obviously responsible for a litany of, of pretty important drug interactions. And so, uh, um, that it seemed reasonable to take a look, I think, at, at this drug and kind of say, well, gee, clarithromycin, uh, uh, we know it's a potent blocker, cytochrome P450, would in patients who are uh, concomitantly prescribed that and patients who are already on, on, on these uh, uh, direct oral anticoagulants, would they have an increased risk of hemorrhage, right? Um, of course, it's hard to measure blood levels in, in these patients. It's, you know, it's one of the blessings and the curses of these drugs is that we don't have to measure uh, blood levels like we have to measure INR and warfarin. Sometimes, though, I think my, my physicians would like to be able to do that. I'd like to be able to have a number to hang their hat on and say, well, they're, you know, they're, they're this level of anticoagulated, to which I always say, well, but wasn't the whole purpose of these medications that you didn't have to do that sort of thing, right? So in this study, they looked at 30-day, again, 30-day risk of, of hospital admission with hemorrhage after a co-prescription of clarithromycin, and their control in this was azithromycin. Even though azithromycin is a macrolide, it goes through the cytochrome P450 system to a much less extent than clarithromycin. So uh, it has uh, much fewer drug-drug interactions compared to clarithromycin. So uh, in this study, uh, the mean age was about 77 years. Most of the patients that were on uh, uh, the NOACs were on them for atrial fibrillation, which is, I I think what you would probably expect. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, case set series was about 6,500 patients 
while the azithromycin or control is about 18,000 patients. Um, and again, uh, uh, this analysis was performed from 2019 to 2020. The uh, time period that they looked uh, for over the entire study was from 2009 to 2016. Um, the uh, most commonly prescribed uh, DOAC in this uh, was rivaroxaban followed by apixaban. About 40% of patients were on rivaroxaban, about 31% of patients were on apixaban, and about 28% of patients were on dabigatran. I would say that, you know, probably those numbers would sh shift a little bit uh, if we were to look at just in the last two or three years. But but again, they looked as, as far back as 2009, where I think a lot more people were using dabigatran. I think certainly in my neck of the woods, we, we rarely use that drug anymore. Anyway, so when they took a look at at, at the, the hospital admission rate for major hemorrhage, and so basically just looking at, at, at a discharge a code of, of, of major hemorrhage within 30 days of the co-prescription, uh, they found that uh, clarithromycin uh, was actually associated with a higher risk of hospital admission for major hemorrhage, 0.77% uh, of patients taking uh, clarithromycin versus only 0.43% of patients taking azithromycin, which resulted in a hazard ratio of 1.71, or in other words, about a 71% relative risk increase in uh, developing uh, a major hemorrhage. Uh, that was statistically significant. Obviously, the numbers are, are the absolute numbers are pretty small. So again, the you know, it's not like people are going to be dropping in the streets from this. I don't think that it. It is something I think we do need to be aware of because I think, as I said at the beginning of this, we we I think a lot of pharmacists, including myself, have kind of fallen into a into a you know well you know these drugs are just so much safer I don't need to worry about them you know and things along those lines. So this paper does suggest that in in, in older patients taking DOAX again primarily for atrial fibrillation, uh, concomitant use of clarithromycin was associated with a small but statistically significant increase in 30-day hemorrhage. So I think what I what I walked away after reading this paper is not that I'm going to, you know, you know, you know, have a cataleptic fit every time I see clarithromycin and, and, and a NOAC prescribed together. I think what this tells me is that that pharmacists, we 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 can't lose our vigilance about uh, drug interactions and anticoagulants. Um, you know, I think all of us uh, practicing pharmacists who've been out in the field for a while, I mean, we've all ran into the, you know, Coumadin patient who was co-prescribed Bactrim, who was co-prescribed Flagyl, who was co-prescribed some, some other, you know, very notorious drug that shot their INR to the ceiling, and they ended up in the hospital with a gastrointestinal bleed or, or an intracranial hemorrhage. So I think we've all seen that. And, and, and so I thought, I think most pharmacists to this day are, are fairly vigilant that when I have somebody on warfarin, whether I'm in the community or in the hospital, and a new drug is co-prescribed with them, we always say, hey, we better make sure there's no interactions, whether we're using drug interaction software, just kind of, you know, our own our own software in our brain that you know, hey, I've I've seen that I've seen that cause a drug interaction before. You know, I think I think we 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 need to we need to be we are obviously vigilant about that. Uh, we, I think while we don't need to worry about quite as many medications with the, with the DOACs, we should not uh, um, uh, uh, relax or vigilance about it. And this did trigger a memory in me because in the last four or five years, I have seen a couple of cases of actually the opposite, not where patients have bled because they've been co-prescribed um, uh, a, a drug with a DOAC, but actually the opposite, in a patient who was prescribed a DOAC who was on a, a, a cytochrome P450 inducer, and then very rapidly after they were started on that, they actually had a clot. And so I've had actually two cases, one, a patient who was on, on phenytoin, 
who was started on a NOAC, and phenytoin is a potent cytochrome P450 inducer. It, it, uh, rev, it res, revs the metabolism of a lot of drugs, and we had a patient who was uh, who had had a, a, a DVT, was started on rivaroxaban, who was also on, 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 on phenytoin, and uh, 60 days later was readmitted to the hospital, our same hospital, with a, with a pulmonary embolism. He swore up and down he had been he had been compliant, and there was no reason to think he wasn't. And of course, you know, no drug is perfectly effective, so there's no way I'll ever be able to one 100% prove that that was the issue, but I certainly brought it to my physician's attention and said, gee, maybe this patient should not be on um, um, uh, 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 a NOAC if they're going to continue to be on, on phenytoin for, for seizures. Uh, some, uh, another case I saw uh, in the last couple of years is an older patient taking um, primidone for essential tremor. And uh, again, primidone is a one is a, uh, uh, a pro-drug that basically gets converted to, to phenobarbital, which again is a potent inducer of the cytochrome P450 system. And uh, the patient uh, was, was started on a NOAC for, uh, for stroke, for atrial fibrillation, and within a couple of, of, of months of starting it, unfortunately, ha had a stroke and came back to us. And again, you know, there's no way to 100% prove that. Um, but but I, again, pointed out to my team that that perhaps uh, uh, NOAC wasn't the best drug in, in that patient. So kind of, you know, I thought it might be a good idea just for the last few minutes just to talk a little bit about, about some of the big drug interactions you might see with these with these drugs. And, you know, again, of course, the, the you know, the primary way that we see most drug interactions, I think in the uh, in in the many of the drugs we see is either uh, um, drug drug interactions that are mediated through the cytochrome P450 enzyme system, um, or the the transporter permeability glycoprotein PGP system. So those are I mean I think there are other systems too like the OATP and BCRP things, but I think for most boots on the ground pharmacists, I think you know cytochrome P450 and PC, PGP are the ones you're really going to want to have to kind of kind of know, right? And we know I'm sure that you know I don't want to trigger you know terrible flashbacks for those of you who are thinking about you know pharmacy school and trying to memorize all this stuff, but but we know that this, that 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 there are inducible uh, and inhibitable enzymes in the liver that are involved in the metabolism of, of numerous medications. And it seems like, you know, the su different subsystems that they're finding of the cytochrome P450 system are expanding all the time. You know, when I came out of school, it was really 3A4 and 2D6 were kind of the biggies, but now we have 2C19 and 1A2 and 3A5 and 2V6. And, and again, it gets to be an alphabet soup that is just, you know, I think beyond what, what most pharmacists have the time or energy to really want to get into. Um, but, but I think just rather than trying to memorize, you know, endless lists of, of subsystems, just kind of knowing, gee, you know, there are certain medications that are either potent inducers or potent inhibitors, and they should just be on my on my red list that whenever a particularly dangerous drug with a fairly narrow therapeutic uh, index is, is co-prescribed, it is better double check. When it comes to the NOACs, um, you know, it's particularly a Pixaban is is about 25% metabolized uh, through the cytochrome P450 system, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, the PGP system, um, all the major NOACs, um, uh, Pixaban, Rivaroxaban, and, and uh, Dabagatran are all substrates of the PGP system. So again, there's the possibility that, it, that if, though, if that transporter is dis dis displaced by another drug, that that could cause significant uh, interactions. So I mean, you know, I think that's, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, that there's certainly multiple ways why why uh, uh, 
the NOACs, even though they're nowhere near as bad as, as drug interactions as warfarin is, um, can still cause significant drug-drug interactions. So what are some of the common drug-drug interactions you're probably likely to run into with these medications? I think, you know, since atrial fibrillation is probably the lion's share of, of why we use these medications, obviously any other drugs that treat atrial fibrillation is probably going to be high on the list. So I think you have to think about, for example, antiarrhythmic drugs, right? So, you know, we know, for example, amiodarone uh, is metabolized through cytochrome P uh, P450-3A4 and a couple of others as well. It's an inhibitor of 3A4. And it's also an, an inhibitor of P-glycoprotein. So again, I tell my students that, you know, amiodarone is just one of those drugs that seems to, to have a ton of, of, of drug interactions. And it's just, it's just something that, 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 that we want to, want to keep in mind. Now, of course, the problem is when they've looked at this, you know, we, ha we have to translate pharmacokinetic uh, uh, findings from interaction studies to clinical outcomes, you know. So, uh, for example, studies with uh, um, dabigatran and amiodarone have found that it increases the area under the curve of dabigatran and the Cmax by about 50% each. Okay, well, what does that what does that mean exactly? Does that does that you know that means that there's more of the drug in the body? Certainly, there's more dabigatran in the body, but does that actually translate into higher bleeding rates. And of course, you know, the assumption is yes, um, but it's hard to make that connection until you've got studies like the one we talked about previously that kind of point out that, that, that you know, yes, this, high, you know, higher levels are probably going to be tied to average drug reactions. When reading these studies, experts have suggested that when you're reading these kind of AUC studies, that if you see a less than twofold increase of, of AUC from one drug to another, it's kind of considered a minor increase. And uh, uh, if it's from two to five, it's kind of considered a moderate increase, and anything greater than five is considered a, a significant and severe increase in the in the AUC. And again, that that alone doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a, a a clinically relevant drug interaction. It just kind of depends on the uh, uh, therapeutic index of the drug. If the drug it has has a very wide therapeutic index, even a fivefold increase in the in the area under the curve levels of the drug may not result in clinically significant uh, adverse drug reaction. So keep that in mind as as we kind of go along here. So uh, uh, drug drug interactions with rivaroxaban are mostly based on on renal function. So even though there is a drug drug interaction, since so little of the drug is cleared by the cytochrome P450 system, you'd really have to have concomitant renal insufficiency as well as beyond the medication to really see a significant increase in AUC. Um, and and I won't talk too much about, about uh, doxaban just because in my world, in my area, we just never see that drug being used. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, you, the, the two I see the most, of course, the factor 10 drugs, apixaban and rivaroxaban, and to a smaller extent, uh, uh, dabigatran. So, uh, you know, we know that the amiodarone has the potential to interact with these medications, particularly in patients with renal insufficiency, because if you have uh, renal insufficiency, that's one pathway which by which the drug is going out. And then uh, the and then of course if, if you're blocking metabolism with either P-glycoprotein inhibition or cytochrome P450 inhibition, that's going to lead to even more drug accumulating. What about calcium channel blockers? Again, diltiazem in particular is 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 commonly used in patients with atrial fibrillation for rate control. Um, and and similar to, to, to amiodarone, uh, yes, there are studies that suggest that that apixaban and rivaroxaban both have increases in AUC and Cmax when they're co-administered with 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 diltiazem, uh, but but 
but again, because a lot of these drugs are also have a renal clearance uh, piece associated with them, there's not usually a problem unless the patient also has concomitant renal insufficiency. So, and then finally, uh, enzyme inhib inducers, and and this is the two cases that I mentioned previously. Um, there are, you know, they're not common drugs certainly, um, but but there are are, are numerous. Uh, not numerous, but there are drugs out there that certainly induce the cytochrome P450 system and rev up the metabolism of a lot of other medications. And again, we don't use them a lot clinically, but you will, uh, those patients will pop up on you when you're really not expecting it, as in the two cases I, I talked about previously. We know that, that, uh, um, um, for a famine, for example, which again is a drug we don't use a ton of, uh, will decrease uh, uh, dabigatran and apixaban exposure by anywhere from 60 to 70 percent. Well, again, is that enough to to basically make the drug not work? Now, you know, if we were able to easily monitor monitor drug levels and knew what a therapeutic range of these medications were, maybe we could do that. But we really can't rely on that. We just have to say, gee, I know that this drug is likely to significantly decrease the amount of of, of active drug in the body, perhaps. Perhaps I shouldn't be using those. So what uh, what what the package inserts of these drugs basically say is that is that if you are a patient who's taking phenytoin, if you're a patient who's taking carbamazepine, primidone, rifampin, phenobarbital, or St. John's wort, uh, they basically say avoid the combination and consider warfarin. And that's exactly what I would recommend. If 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 you've got a patient who's been on carbamazepine for a long time for seizure control, and it's pretty unlikely you're going to be able to get them off the carbamazepine or their or their phenytoin, I really would say, look, warfarin is probably the, the better choice in this because I can measure depth of anticoagulation. I can shoot for a target that I know is has been associated with protection without excess bleeding. And I think that's kind of important with uh, verapamil and diltiazem, the calcium channel blockers. Again, um, uh, the combination is with these drugs is usually considered safe unless they're, uh, they have a renal insufficiency. And that's the same with, with, with amiodarone with most of these medications that is if they don't have renal insufficiency, they're usually considered safe, safe to use. So. So that's kind of a, a wrap up. Again, not a, not an earth shattering topic, but I think again, I think a lot of prescribers as well as as pharmacists kind of get lulled into a false sense of complacency about uh, uh, drug interactions and 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 the and the DOAX. And again, much safer than than warfarin, but they do occur. And I think we need to kind of to kind of keep an eye on that. And certainly, you know, as pharmacists, warn our prescribers when you do have that occasional patient who has atrial fibrillation, who also happens to be on carbamazepine or on on primidone, that perhaps uh, a, a a DOAC isn't the right choice for them. So, so we're back in a second to wrap up. But first, a message from uh, CE Impact and some of the great uh, programs and 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 the CE packages they have on their uh, website. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So to wrap up, you know, uh, a paper recently came out that suggested that uh, patients who are on DOACs 
who are put on a drug that is known to block the cytochrome P450 system seems to be associated with an increased risk of, of hemorrhage that requires hospitalization. Again, that does not need, mean, mean, uh, mean you need to run screaming into the night that uh, every time you see this combination that you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to demand that it's stopped. But I do think we need to take a step back and think. And you know, certainly if there's another choice for antibiotic in the patient. And in many cases, I think azithromycin works about as well in most of the, the, the infections you would use clearthromycin for, not all of them, but most of them. Uh, would that be a reasonable thing to consider, you know, recommending to the physician saying, you know, I get clearthromycin, maybe the drug of choice here, but azithromycin even uh, is, is much less likely to cause to cause this problem. The overall risk is low, as, as the paper suggested. Again, there's not going to be people dropping in the streets from this, but it's enough that, that if you can avoid it, uh, especially in the, in the higher and higher number of patients that we have that are, are taking these drugs, um, I think that's, that's the way to go. So, so that wraps it up for, the, for this week. Uh, again, please stick around. Uh, I hope you like the program. Next week, uh, we'll see if we can keep our non-COVID street run, running. I don't know if we're going to be able to, uh, but hopefully we can. And if not, we'll be talking about COVID stuff and uh, certainly multiple times throughout, throughout the course of this podcast. Again, like us, talk about us, and please, please do go to the CE Impact website and consider subscribing uh, uh, for, for CE uh, for just listening to my voice. So that's it. We'll catch you next week. And remember that time flies. I don't know where it's going, but today's the most important day. See you next week.